Click the site. There we go. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here, along with William Fink, and this is the Yahweh's Covenant People Show. This evening, we're going to be starting our series on the Book of Revelation, and uh, the the entire story of well, it was it was the revelation of Jesus Christ, or by Yahshua, given to the Apostle John. Isn't that exactly how we should see this uh, Book of Revelation? Well, well, absolutely. I know there's an awful lot of criticism of that, and we're going to address a lot of that tonight. John, the Apostle, the Apostle of the Gospel of John, and the Epistles of John wrote the revelation of Joshua Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you want to get into that, the, the uh, verification of that statement? Well, well, yeah, and, and um, but I'd, I'd like to start with the antiquity of some of the some of the manuscripts, right? And, okay. and then move on to, to, to the statements and the revelation itself and, and the, um, the statements of many of the earliest Christian writers, right? Uh-huh. Like the rest of the New Testament, there are many witnesses to the text of the revelation, which are very old. When, when, um, when, when I translated my own New Testament translation, I was only concerned exclusively with manuscripts which were esteemed by archaeologists and scholars to predate the 6th century A.D. And, and that's because I see that as the time of Justinian and when the Roman Church first began to extend its reach and consolidate its power over Christendom. And from the time of the 6th century, you know, there's, there's problems with the manuscripts that are older than that. But from the time of the 6th century, we start to see really a lot of interpolations and divergences in what we consider the Scripture. So I didn't pay attention to any manuscripts that, that were from the 6th century and later, right? I, yeah. I just ignored them all. And... and just so that people have an idea of the age of sources for the text, I, I would like to give here the relevant witnesses to the text of the Revelation, which are from the remotest antiquity. And, and the papyri, the papyri, there's, over, there's well over 100 papyri considered in the, the what I call the NA27 text, right? That, that's the Nestle A land, Novum Testamentum Grece. It's, you know, the Württemberg Bible Society started putting together a New Testament text from the most reliable oldest manuscripts in the 1800s. And and with all of the discoveries in archaeology, now that happened through through the 19th and 20th centuries, they're up to edition 27 of that text. And that's why it's called the NA27, right? Now, it lists as sources for ancient manuscripts, over a 100 papyri. And, and these are paper manuscripts that were discovered in graves or in libraries buried in, in the earth, right, or, or in diverse sources that, that were, contain parts of the Scripture. And some of those papyri are pretty um, voluminous. I, I mean, P46 is a famous papyri which, which contains practically all of of the text to Paul's letters, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's a rare find because P46 is esteemed by archaeologists to be from the 2nd century A.D. Yeah. Now, now, 
Here, here's the list for, for, of papyri extant for the Revelation. Now, the NA-27 actually gives the, the institution that holds the papyri, right, like a library or a university or a museum, and the catalog number. If you really wanted to, you could look up any document in the NA-27 and, and verify its existence with the museum in question, right, or, mm-hmm. or the, um, the institution in question. The papyri designated 98 is from the 2nd century, and it contains the verses from Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 20. Now, now that's, you know, it's only a very small part of the Revelation, but it verifies that the book is that old, right? Mm -hmm. Papyri 18 is from either the 3rd or 4th centuries, and it contains parts of Revelation chapter 1. Papyri 24 is from the 4th century, contains parts of chapters 5 and 6. Papyri 47 is from the 3rd century. It contains much of chapters 9 through 15. Papyri 85 is from the 4th or 5th century, and it contains parts of chapters 9 and 10. So, So they're the most ancient witnesses for the Revelation. These things were dug out of the ground, right? And, and we've had these great uncles. The great uncles are the coin Greek vellum manuscripts. Vellum is made from animal skin, right? Yeah. And they're very durable for that reason, unlike the papyri, which fragments and falls to pieces with time. Now, now these papyri basically substantiate the texts that were passed down through the ages and copied over and over again by scribes or, or, or whatever, right? Because when we copy something down over 1,500 years, and then we dig something out of the ground that's 1,600 years old, and, and they pretty much match, well, well, then we know that what we've been copying for 1,500 years really is that old, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this archaeology proves the veracity of the New Testament. Right. It's not a product of the Middle Ages. It's not a product of the Roman Catholic Church. These texts were dug out of graves in Syria, in Anatolia, in Palestine, in Greece, the, the, the catacombs of Rome. These texts were definitely dug out of contexts that are 2,000 years old, or, or at, at least 1,800 years old, right? Right. Well, well the... Um, the, the great the great codexes of the Revelation, the Codex Sinaiticus, is from the fourth century, and this itself was found in a monastery in in in, in the late nineteenth century, I think, early twentieth century in Palestine. Right? The uh-huh. Codex Sinaiticus is new to scholars, but and and it wasn't passed down through. Well, well, it was, but it was out of the purview of, of the the major part of scholarship in Europe. Right? That that it was passed down. And, and they almost um, shredded it and, and used it for other purposes. And, and an archaeologist discovered it in, in just a pile in a monastery in, in the Middle East, in, in the Sinai, and, and it was about to be trashed. And, and it's, it, it was an amazing discovery. The Codex Sinaiticus story, I think, is, is um, a very important one. Well, well, that's from the 4th century. And the Codex Sinaiticus is really the only complete copy of revelation from antiquity, which predates the 5th century. Well, no manuscript can be deemed to be perfect with the information that we have. This is probably 
in, in my estimation, the most reliable single ancient copy of the Revelation that we possess. Okay. The Codex Alexandrinus is from the 5th century, and that also contains all of the Revelation, or, or for the most part. And, and it, I, I must warn that I find the manuscripts of, of the Alexandrian tradition, right? Yeah. That's the Codex Alexandrinus is the, the principal one of those manuscripts of the Alexandrian tradition, and I find them to be unreliable in many respects. Okay. And, and out of all the out of all the ancient, the most ancient manuscripts and, and codexes, the King James is closest to the Codex Alexandrinus. The King James can actually be said to follow the so-called Alexandrian tradition, and that can be proven. Now, now very clearly, the Codex Ephraim Siri contains. Um, Many chapters of Revelation, text for many chapters of it, it's not complete. It, it was, you know, damaged with time. And that is a, a manuscript of the Alexandrian tradition, and it's also of the 5th century. Now, other less famous codices, less famous, they don't even have names, right? They're just designated by identifying numbers among scholars. 0163 is from the 5th century. It contains... A portion of Revelation chapter 16. 0169 is from the 4th century. It contains parts of chapters 3 and 4. 0207 is from the 4th century. It contains parts of chapter 9. Mm-hmm. But, you know, between what we've handed down throughout the years and what we've found and dug out of the ground, yeah, you know, we can pretty much substantiate the, the, the greater part, the, the entire text of the Revelation in the Codex Sinaiticus alone. But the other manuscripts don't agree with it everywhere, right? But we can pretty much substantiate the Revelation manuscripts as, as we have it, okay? That, that, and, and understand its antiquity. And, and there's, there's no doubt that it wasn't um, that, that it's not a very ancient document and, and right from the first century A.D. That, that shouldn't be doubted by anybody. Mm-hmm. I, I know there are people that claim it's a product of the Middle Ages, and, and those people are just um, absolutely ignorant. Now, now, there are many other manuscripts besides these which contain all or parts of the Revelation, which, like the rest of the New Testament, is attested to rather consistently down through the centuries. There are also witnesses for the text of the Revelation in the manuscripts of early Christian writers, such as Tertullian, 2nd century A.D., Irenaeus, 2nd century A.D., Cyprian, and, and Victorianus of, of Pital, 3rd century A.D., who were all, you know, very early writers, and, and some of them in many cases older than the codexes that we have, right? Now, now, for the Revelation, and only for the Revelation, okay, the medieval manuscripts, and this is very important, the medieval manuscripts, which are known as the majority text, are divided into two camps. These two camps are either those manuscripts of the Revelation, which are generally known as the coin tradition, which are of the majority, or a minority of the manuscripts, which are known to originate from one Andreas of Caesarea. Andreas of Caesarea was a medieval monk of possibly the 9th century A.D. or a little earlier, who wrote a commentary on the Revelation. Many of his notes were apparently later incorporated into the text. And those manuscripts which were copied from Andreas's text created a second camp of Revelation's manuscripts that contained many differences and many interpolations. 
Now, these majority manuscripts, right, the, the manuscripts that I've just mentioned, all of these ancient great codexes, they're not what the, the, the scribes pass around and what the scholars pass around, right? Mm -hmm. The majority text manuscripts are supposedly authentic copies of older manuscripts that the scribes and the scholars do pass around. And, and that's important, an important thing to distinguish because we see in those manuscripts that the scholars have used in, in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, that those manuscripts contain many interpolations and, and many errors, all right? Yeah. And we find those errors and in interpolations by comparing those manuscripts to the oldest manuscripts. Well, those ancient codexes were not available to the King James translators and, and other Bible translators. And, and basically, the King James used manuscripts that were from this majority text group of manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And the King James, when they did the revelation, actually used the, one of the manuscripts from Andreas of Caesarea. And the manuscripts from Andreas of Caesarea have, in the Revelation, many long interpolations. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous of those interpolations is in Revelation 25, where it says, but the rest of the dead live not again until a thousand years were finished. Those words do not belong in our Bibles. Okay. They're not in any of the ancient manuscripts. They're the opinion of a medieval monk. Okay. And, and that's something that's made it into our doctrine mm -hmm. because the King James used a faulty manuscript when they translated the Revelation. Right. Now, now the Revelation of, of Joshua Christ opens like this. A revelation from Joshua Christ which God had given to him to show to his servants the things which are necessary to happen quickly. And he having sent, explained to his messenger, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Joshua Christ. As many things as he had seen. So we have bore witness and had seen, or past tense, right, that right. John writes. It's clear from John 1.1 1, 1, that John believed first Joshua Christ to be the Son of God and come in the flesh, where, where the revelation testifies that it is written by his servant John who bore witness, past tense, to the word of God. That can only mean that this John who wrote the revelation is the same John who wrote the gospel, which is what John considered to be the word of God mentioned here as the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Mm -hmm. And the intent here is to demonstrate that John the Apostle wrote the Revelation, as the Revelation itself clearly informs us that he did, and that he was indeed confined to Patmos for a time during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Okay. After the death of Domitian, John was able to leave Patmos and retire to Ephesus. Okay. Quick, and since, yeah, quick question here. Uh, Domitian uh, is uh, where related to uh, who was uh, Nero? Is uh, did he follow Nero or did precede Nero? Well, well, he followed Nero, but so did several other emperors, right? Nero is um, in in the fifties and sixties A.D. Domitian actually came after the. Um, he he was the grandson of. Vespasian, the son of Titus, I believe. Really? I think it was Vespasian and then Titus. I could be wrong, but I think okay. it was Vespasian 
Well, well, it was Nero, right? Mm-hmm. Then after Nero, it was Otho. Then after Otho, it was Vitellius. Then after Vitellius, it was Galba. That was what Tacitus called the year of four kings, right? Okay. And because okay. Nero slain, Otho took the reign for six months. Vitellius knocked him off. Vitellius <laughs> took, took it for three months. Galba knocked right. him off. Galba died. Vespasian became the emperor. Or maybe, maybe I had that backwards. I think it was Nero, Galba, Vitellius, Otho, Vitellius. And after Vitellius, Vespasian had come to Rome and taken the throne. Okay. Right? And, and then we have Vespasian and then Titus, and, and then Domitian, I think, was Vespasian's grandson. Okay. Now, now Domitian was a real bastard, right? Yeah, he, well, he, many of them were, yes. <laughs> he, he's very strong. Well, well, Vespasian and Titus were both loved. Okay. You know, and, and they both had very good, I think, very good... Um, Reports with their people and and very good reputations and Domitian was a bastard and a, and a very heavy persecutor of Christians uh-huh. and and Domitian ruled from eighty one to ninety six A D and we see that for for that that John was quite old when he wrote the Revelation okay and and we're gonna um what well, we're going to um demonstrate that he indeed did. Okay. By all the the early witness the the legitimate witnesses and accounts and and this actually the knowledge that John wrote the revelation during the reign of Domitian this just destroys the idea of preterism right right the preterism is actually a view of prophecy and Clifton just put a paper on his website about preterism and futurism how both of those beliefs and and views of prophecy came from the Jewish Jesuits of the Middle Ages. Okay. And, and yes. the knowledge that John wrote wrote the revelation, that, that was revealed to John after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., right. and, and I would say V.S. Herald and other clowns like that should take note of this, it okay. just destroys the belief that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 A.D. Right. That now, is the correct definition of preterism. Right, yeah, that, uh, because they, they seem to think that 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, that some, well, but if they believe that, uh, where is the kingdom? If they actually believe that, you know, I, I don't see the kingdom here. <laughs> well, uh, what do they do with that understanding? Uh, do, do they assume that we're in the kingdom? Well, well right, they do. They, they assume, V.S. Herald's position is that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 A.D., by 70 A.D., we should have taken the scepter as Christians, and yeah. we should have the world ever since. But since we haven't done it, we've been lax. But uh, that's, his, that, that's his basic position yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, there's so many prophecies uh, that pertain to us, namely that we would be afflicted by the children of wickedness. We're still being afflicted by the children of wickedness. There's no doubt about that. So that prophecy hasn't ended. Well, well, as we covered the Revelation and, and the four horsemen of the the apocalypse and see how all that is in the past, the rise and fall of Rome, we'll, 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 I'll, I'll be able to demonstrate that even um, Irenaeus, the second century bishop of, of what is now known as Lyons in France, he he saw the correlation between the Revelation and Daniel. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Right. In the second century, and he understood that the revelation predicted the fall of Rome. Right, right. And and that was in that that was 
Yes, 250 exactly. years before it happened. So, so 300 he, years almost before it happened, he yeah. understood that. Now, isn't, that there, now um, isn't there another form of preterism which, uh, you know, I think they, they're not uh, millennialist, uh, pre-millennialist, uh, let me put it this way, post-millennialists, the, the ones who believe that the thousand years, you know, which the verse you're discussing, Revelation 26, what, what were the words in that verse that don't belong there that came in later? And, and the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were over. Yes. That, that, those words don't belong there at all. It's, right. it's okay. the opinion of a medieval monk. And, right. and all the rest, all of verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5 in Revelation 20 should say, all it should say is, this is the first, as I translate it, restoration. Right, okay. Because the word also means a restoration, and we'll talk about it, that at length as we get to it. Yeah, But yeah. That, that, even if you insist on translating that resurrection, it should only say this is the first resurrection, period. Uh-huh. That's all right. the verse should say. But okay. I translate that restoration, and I have good reason to doing that for doing that, which I'll explain when yes. we get to it. Because Keith was always referring to me as a preterist because I don't believe that the thousand years is after that verse. Okay. Well, well, Keith's position is that that has to be talking about the resurrection. The dead haven't been resurrected yet, and if you believe the dead have been resurrected, oh, okay. you might be a preterist. So he's that, talking about the final resurrection. That he th- well, he's, well, right. And okay. Keith's um, outlook is extremely shallow, and the truth is that yes. those words don't even belong there, right? They're, right. They're not, but, it's manuscripts. But his position, his form, he's calling me a preterist, but I don't have... I don't say anything about 70 A.D. Obviously, I'm a historian, a historicist, as you are, right? And that we're interpreting the book of Revelation as ongoing prophecy from the days that John had these visions. Well, well right. Now that, we're, now, now that 1,900 years have passed, yeah. a good deal of the Revelation has passed. All right, so that how do the preterists, yeah, how do they deal with the fact that, how do they deal with the fact that John was on Patmos in 90 A.D.? How do they well, deal well, with that? Well, well, we're going to establish that John was indeed on Patmos in, in 90 A.D. now, right? Yeah, because that prophecy is all post-70 A.D., right? <laughs> a, a lot of the people that accuse me of being a preterist when, in fact, I'm a historicist, those people don't realize that they are futurists. Okay, okay, very good. That John said these <laughs> things would happen quickly, meaning that they would start to happen immediately. Yeah. Doesn't mean they're going to finish happening immediately, yeah. but they would start happening immediately. And they did, but mm-hmm. we have a couple of thousand years of prophecy here, folks, and, yeah. and that's the way it is, and, and that'll unfold as, as we proceed. Yes. Now, isn't there also a prophecy by Jesus himself talking to the apostles where he says, you shall not compass all the cities of Israel until, uh, until the Son of Man be come? That well, right. referring and to his own second coming. Hardly any of the cities of Israel had heard of Christ yet, right? Right, exactly. Uh, Anatolia, Greece, Macedonia, but the Germans, the, the Germans who all identists agree to the dispersion of the Assyrians, they hadn't heard of Christ by 70 A.D. Right. There's no, you know, and, and the, the British, that they, they haven't really heard of Christ by 70. The Irish, we, we, we suspect, have. Right. But most the British Jewish. people, the Scandinavians, the Goths, the, the Germans, they haven't heard of Christ by 70 A.D. Right. So Christ would be a liar if, if, yeah. if the Preterists were right. That's and and V.S. Herrell, V.S. Herrell, when he did his translation of his anointed New Testament, he, he really contorted the meanings of a lot of Greek words 
to legitimize his preterence position. Oh, okay. Okay. All right, understood. And, and I would debate V.S. Herald personally on that any time. Oh, sure. Yeah, so would I. <laughs> I'd love to gang up on him on that. You know? well, all right, but I could debate him on the meaning to the Greek terms, right? Uh-huh. And, okay. and I don't Very think good. he could debate me on, on that point. Right, right. Excellent. Because I don't think he really knows Greek. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. Well, at least I'm honest. I tell people I don't I don't know Greek. I just do word studies, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, well, right, and that's all it takes, but I, I just know it because I've done... Yeah, you know, I did nothing but word studies for ten years. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I had lots of time, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But the um, okay, I, I would like now, now that we've, uh, I'd like to the following excerpts that I have. Okay, they're all taken from the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Right, right. the Anti-Nicene Fathers is what the mainstream um, scholars call the earliest church writers from the time before the Council of Nicaea, right? right. And, and, just, and basically that's from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Yeah, let me just forth. clarify for people, it's A-N-T-E, meaning before the, uh, the Council of Nicaea. Which well, well first, right, it's not the fathers against the Council of Nicaea, right? Right, right. It was before, the fathers before the Council of Nicaea, which took place, what, 325 A.D.? Yes. Okay. Yes, right, so this is from, this is actually from, all of these quotes are actually from the Anti-Nicene Fathers' translations of the writings of the Fathers down to A.D. 325 by Roberts et al. There's a whole list of people that were involved in it. And this is from Logos Research Systems, right? But these books are still available today. You could still purchase these books today. I mean, they're quite popular, right? Uh-huh. By Fathers here, they mean all of those early Christian bishops and other writers whose works have been preserved to one degree or another. And right. some of Writings are, of course, of greater import than others. And while we may not uh, agree with all of their doctrines and their interpretations of Scripture, Christianity at this time was quite different than what the organized Roman church later professed. Right. And the historical accounts found in these documents, that they can't be lightly dismissed, right? They, they're, they're not just to be pushed aside and, and, oh, well, that really didn't happen, well, especially when we have... Um, five, six, eight, ten of these early bishops in diverse places who disagreed with each other on so much uh-huh. all agree with the monist account concerning John. Okay. okay. No, it, it's only a it's couple of instances we will see. <laughs> well, well, right, but Irenaeus and Tertullian and Justin Martyr, and they're, they're all, they all testify that John was in Patmos and wrote the Revelation after he returned to Ephesus. Yeah, you know, that's and, and that did, couldn't have happened until 96 A.D. Okay. And, and okay, I, I'm going to start with the Epistle of Ignatius to the Tarsians. And I'm going to say that this is a scheme to be one of the spurious epistles of Ignatius. There's a whole collection of epistles of Ignatius, and we have some which academics esteem spurious and some which are esteemed to be legitimate. Okay. And I haven't made a study of them for myself, and, and nevertheless, the document is, is of early antiquity. Okay. From chapter 3, the true, true doctrine respecting Christ, I'm only taking a quote that has to do with John out of each of these citations, right? Otherwise, we'd be uh-huh. here for three days. And, and why such facts as the following? Peter was crucified. Paul and James were slain with a sword. John was banished to Patmos. Uh-huh. Stephen was stoned to death by the Jews who killed the Lord. And, and that's, yeah, you know, that's the first statement that John was banished to Patmos, right? Okay. And as the Revelation says, and he's talking about 
Peter, Steve, he's talking about those early apostles, right? Yeah. From the epistle of Ignatius to the Ephesians, he says, Surely I may point out some of the proverbial wisdom of this great disciple, which has often stirred my soul, as with the trumpet heard by St. John in Patmos. That's another witness to this, mm-hmm. right? And, and they're going to get that. From the fragments of Clement Alexandrius, Clemens Alexandrinus, he's known as, right? And, and this is the famous Bishop Clement. The, these fragments are not in the Oxford edition, but they are in this edition. And they're from a treatise entitled, Who is the Rich Man that Shall Be Saved? And it says in chapter 42, quote, and that you may still more be still more confident that repenting thus truly there remains for you a sure hope of salvation. Listen to a tale which is not a tale but a narrative handed down and committed to the custody of memory about the Apostle John for when on the tyrant's death he returned to Ephesus from the Isle of Patmos. Mm, okay, very good. Very good. From the appendix to the works of Hippolytus, in the section described as containing dubious and spurious pieces. So this, again, is a, is a dubious work, right? And I have a couple of these here, but most of them are esteemed to be legitimate. Okay. However, even the dubious pieces are of great antiquity. This says, John, again in Asia, was banished by Domitian to the, the king to the Isle of Patmos, in which he also wrote his gospel and saw the apocalyptic vision. Mm-hmm. And in Trajan's time, now Trajan took the rule of Rome in 98 AD, right? In Trajan's time, he fell asleep or died at Ephesus, uh, where his remains were sought but could not be found. Okay, and what was the Trajan's rule? What was his time period? He started at 98 AD. Okay. So, so John died in Trajan's time. He ruled until 117 okay. for, for 19 years, right? 20 years. Now, now okay. from the same, from, from the same, from Hippolytus, in a, in a work, in a treatise entitled Treatise on Christ and Antichrist, he says, for he sees one in the Isle Patmos, a revelation of awful mysteries, which he recounts freely and makes known to others. Okay. So, so that's the third witness, right? This is, this, this which follows is from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is one of the earliest prolific non-apostolic Christian writers, right? right? And he lived from approximately 103 to 165 A.D., yeah, a time very close to that of this John. He couldn't have known John, right? Right. Because he was born in 103, but he was extremely close to the Apostle John. Okay. And, and um, this is from chapter 81 of the Dialogue of Justin, Philosopher and Martyr, with Trifo, a Jew. It, it's, a, it's, it's kind of along the lines of the Socratic Dialogues, right? Okay. And further, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him. So we see that he says that the, that the apostle John, the apostle of Christ, prophesied by the revelation, right, that was made to him, that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem. There, there's his interpretation right. of a thousand years of revelation, right? Right, right. And that, and that thereafter, the general and, in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. Okay. 
Okay. So, so we see it a um, that the thousand years isn't really important what he thinks about that, sure. but he he does believe that it is um, yeah. before the return of Christ and before the judgment, right? Right. So and, and with this, that John is the uh, you know, writer of uh, Revelation. Right. Yeah. That's what's important. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. Uh, any more? Uh, I have a lot more. Oh, okay. Irenaeus. <laughs> Irenaeus, who lived in two hundred two. Uh, Irenaeus lived. I'm sorry, until two hundred two B.C. He's probably the most important of, of these witnesses because of his, um, you know, because he was alive during the second century, like Justin Martyr, okay. and, and very close to the time of John. And, and Tertullian would be, yeah, you know, aside from Justin Martyr, Tertullian would be the next in importance. And, and even if we had only those three witnesses, that should be plenty, right? Right. Well, well um... Irenaeus says, in, and he was the bishop of Lugdunum in Gaul, which is now known as Lyons in, in France. Okay. From Irenaeus, from his Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 1, Paragraph 1, where we see, and, and the important thing here is to see that the Apostle John of the Gospel, it was the Apostle John of the Gospel who lived in Ephesus, right? Who was the John of that name identified as living in Ephesus, where he says, afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, had, who had also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Okay, so, so there's another witness that John, this John that was the apostle, dwelt in Ephesus. Now, now um, from Irenaeus Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 3, Paragraph 4. There are also those who heard from him that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving Corinthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without, without bathing, exclaiming, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. That now it's a story about something John did in Ephesus, and this Corinthus was a heretic, right? And, and it goes on to say, there is also a very powerful epistle of Polycarp written to the, written to the Philippians. So this is Irenaeus quoting an, an epistle of Polycarp, right? Okay. From those who choose to do so and are anxious about their salvation can learn the character of his faith and the preaching of the truth. Then again, the church in Ephesus founded by Paul and having John remaining among them permanently until the times of Trajan is a true witness of the tradition of the apostles. Okay. So, so that puts the apostle John in Ephesus until the time of Trajan, uh-huh. just like the prior items that I read did, right? Right. right. So it's a fairly so consistent, a fairly consistent report. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Tertullian, who lived from 160 to 220 A.D., was the Bishop of Carthage and a prolific Christian apologist and writer. From Tertullian, from a lengthy work entitled, now, now we're going to talk about Marcion, right? Yeah. Well, Tertullian, from a lengthy work entitled, The Five Books Against Marcion. Uh, okay? Oh, okay. So Tertullian Good. wrote, Five books against Marcion, right? Uh-huh. And, and here, Marcion's a heretic that didn't believe that John the Apostle wrote. 
He, he rejected John's authorship of the Revelation, but he also rejected the Revelation, and, and he rejected a whole lot of other things, right? Mm-hmm. Marcion, I'm going to read a, a quote about Marcion to, so, so that we get this diversion in now. Marcion is sometimes described as a Gnostic philosopher, and, and in some essential respects, Marcion proposed ideas that would have aligned well with Gnostic thought. Like the Gnostics, he argued that Christ was essentially a spirit appearing to men and not fully human himself, right? Marcion conceptualizes God in a way which cannot be reconciled with broader Gnostic thought and, and the Gnostics believing that every human is born with a small piece of God's soul. Okay. And, and we understand that the, the, the um, I'm not going to get into the metaphysics, but yeah. Marcion held by contrast that the Heavenly Father, the Father of Christ, was an utterly alien God. <laughs> he had no part in making the world <laughs> or any connection with it. So, right. so Marcion was basically... A uh, um, <laughs> well, well, Yeah, right. He, he was basically a heretic, yeah. and, and he was the first one to claim that John the Apostle did not write the Revelation. Right. Now, one other um, bishop, and, and that's a, um, a, a, a student of origins, and I'll discuss him in a, in a little bit from Alexandria. He also followed Marcion, mm-hmm. and, and he was in the 3rd century. But the greater number of these, uh, of these um, earliest witnesses refute that. They all say that John, the Apostle that wrote the Gospel, wrote right. the Revelation at Ephesus after his exile from Patmos, right? And here's Tertullian. We also have St. John's foster churches, for although Marcion rejects his apocalypse, the order of the bishops thereof, meaning the seven churches, right, Mm -hmm. when traced up to their origin, will yet rest on John as their author. Mm -hmm. And the same man has recognized the excellent source of the other churches, I say, therefore, that in them, and not simply such of them as were rounded by the apostles, but in all those which are united with them in the fellowship of the mystery of the gospel of Christ. Yes, yes. So, so, and, and he goes on to say that Luke, that gospel of Luke, which we are defending with all our might, has stood its ground from its very first publication. And, and he basically goes on, that this is five lengthy books in response to Marcion's heresies, yeah. basically. Yeah, okay, very good. Very okay, good. Well, we see... Yes. Tertullian witnessed that, that John wrote the, the Apocalypse and was answering Marcion even in the second century mm-hmm. when Tertullian Bishop of Carthage, right? Now, right. this right. is from Tertullian from his treatise entitled The Prescription Against Heretics, chapter 26, where he says, How happy is its church on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, where Paul wins his crown, and, and, and this is a story he's repeating that I have nowhere else, right? Mm-hmm. In a death like John's, where the Apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil, and from there remitted to his island exile. So, so he is testifying that John was exiled on Patmos. Now, this is from Tertullian from a treatise entitled, De Fuga in Persecution, or Flight in Persecution, okay. Section 9. Accordingly, John also teaches that we must lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, that's from the gospel, right? Yes. Much more than we must fit, we must do it for the Lord. This cannot be fulfilled by those who flee. Yes. He's talking 
not fleeing from persecution. Or, or right? those who are raptured, right? <laughs> well, right. Finally, mindful of his own revelation. So here he's saying that the revelation belongs to the, the, the John that wrote the, the, um, the gospel, right? From his own revelation in which he had heard the doom of the fearful, and so speaking from personal knowledge, he warns us that fear must be put away. There is no fear, says he, in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. And then he says, the lake of fire, no doubt, he that feareth is not perfect in love. What Tertullian just did for us, right, was show us that he believed that the same John wrote the Gospel of John, the mm-hmm. Revelation, and the first epistle of John, because that quotes from the first epistle. Very good. Very good. Yes, yes. Yeah, so uh, all of these witnesses, and uh, it's it's pretty obvious that all of the, the non-dubious ones are in favor of John being the author of Revelation. Even the dubious ones are in favor of it. Well, well, I know how the dubious ones are, too, right? Right, except and for the I outright have, heretics, right? I, I actually have two more. I'm not done. Oh, okay. Uh, after Tertullian, right? Uh-huh. It's Victorinus of Petau. Petau is Petovio in, in Pannonia, and, and it's in modern Slovenia. The, the, it's now spelled P-T-U-J. I'm not going to try to pronounce that, right? And, and Victor, Victorinus of Petau died around 303 A.D. So he followed um, Tertullian by 100 years, and he followed Irenaeus by, by um, 150, probably. But um, here's his from his commentary on the Apocalypse of the Blessed John, in which he maintains without doubt that the author of the Gospel is the author of the Revelation, from the 10th chapter, he says, when John said these things, he was in the, the island of Patmos, condemned to the labor of the mines by Caesar Domitian. There, therefore, he saw the Apocalypse, and when grown old, he thought that he should at length receive his quittance by suffering, Domitian being killed all his judgments were discharged. In other words, John was free to leave. And John being dismissed from the mines, thus subsequently delivered the same apocalypse which he had received from God. Mm -hmm. This, therefore, is what he says. Thou must prophesy to all nations because thou seest the crowds of Antichrist. The crowds of Antichrist rise up. (laughs) He believes that they were walking around. Right. right. And against them, right. (laughs) And against them, other crowds shall stand, and they shall fall by the sword on the one side and on the other. And it's evident to me that Victorinus of Petal, what was what was quoting something from a work that we don't have anymore. What when he said that, but he Mm -hmm. believed that the Antichrist, what were throngs of people, and and we know that to be true. Most of them are um, in New York, and Miami, and Los Angeles. That's right. Reserve. Yes, exactly. <laughs> here at length, after some background history, uh, a meeting and discourse between John, a prisoner, and the Emperor Domitian himself is described. Whereafter, Domitian decides to exile John rather than execute him. And, and I'll spare you all that. I'm reading from the Apocrypha of the New, New Testament. Acts of the Holy Apostle and Evangelist John the Theologian, 
from the part entitled about his exile and departure. I won't read it all. It's quite lengthy. I'll read um, one, one short paragraph where I quote, And straight away John sailed to Patmos, where he was also deemed worthy to see the revelation of the end. And when Domitian was dead, Nerva succeeded to the kingdom. So I think there was a two-year period between uh, of Nerva before the time of Turchan, right? Nerva succeeded to the kingdom and recalled all who had been banished by Domitian. And having kept the kingdom for a year, he made Trajan his successor in the kingdom. And when he was king over the Romans, John went to Ephesus and regulated all the teaching of the church. So, so they're accrediting John with, with um, okay. creating a canon, right? Okay. Holding many conferences and reminding them of what the Lord had said to them and to what duty he had assigned to each. Maybe that's the story of the seven churches, you, you know? Right. And, and when he was old and changed, he ordered Polycarp to be the bishop over the church. Oh, so, so that's the, the um, that, that's a spurious work. And, and that's, I think, the third spurious work I've quoted. But we've also seen yeah. Justin Potter, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Victorinus of Petal, four excellent witnesses, yeah. in addition to these spurious works. And Ignatius, the Bishop Ignatius, and, and they all testify that John wrote the Revelation, right. and he, John who wrote the Gospel. Okay, well... Now, so- now, let me just comment on that real quick, because it sounds rather unlikely that John would be able to hold court on Patmos with the with the Roman legions guarding. Well, he's saying that he, he held court after he returned to Ephesus, right? After he returned to Ephesus. Okay. Okay. And then uh, at what time was this? Because I thought he died on Patmos. Well, well no. He, he retired to Ephesus after Domitian was dead. And, oh. And would have been 96 A.D., and he lived, by all these accounts, until the time of Trajan, which begins in 98 A.D., right? So he he spent at least two years in Ephesus Uh after the exile in Patmos. I I misunderstood you earlier. I thought you said Trajan was from 90 A.D. to 117 A.D., but you... you, Oh, no, I'm sorry, 98. 98. Yes, 98. And, and Nerva had a, you know, a, a year or so in between. I think probably about two years or so in between. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. Very good. So it, it, is, it is possible that he held court and uh, you know, uh, received representatives from these various cities, which would be congregations, not churches in reality. Well, well yes, and there is a... a, a um, I, I didn't pay much attention to that when I put this together, but there is an Irenaeus a longer fragment that I didn't read, but um, mm-hmm. my notes on this are all already posted on my Christrike site. Okay. Oh, okay, I'm posting as we proceed through this Revelation exhi- exhibition over the next coming, well, may, it might last two months, right? I right. Mean, but, but it's everything that I write in, in relationship to this program will be posted as comments and notes on my Christrike site, Christreich.org, where I already have my Revelation translation. Okay. Very good. Very good. Outstanding. Well, I, I'd say there's plenty of witnesses that uh, pre- the preterists are wrong, <laughs> and that the, the critics that, that say that John is not the author of Revelation are wrong. And, uh, you know, and here we're, we're basically agreeing with the conventional wisdom. 
Well, okay. well, right, but yes. also all the, the, the yeah, you know, the conventional wisdom isn't always wrong. That's right. uh, I mean, a lot of things that the church held in, in, in the third century, fourth century, yes, they perverted it right. to accommodate a professional priesthood. They're There's only wrong when they disagree with us. <laughs> yes, they, they, they threw out some books that probably belonged in the Bible, and they kept a couple that probably didn't belong, or, or at least they kept Esther, as far as I'm concerned, uh-huh. didn't belong, right? Yes. So, okay. so they didn't. They weren't perfect. They were men like we, mm-hmm. and, and they accommodated the the, um, the pressures of the time, which I'm sure many of us would make the same mistake in doing. Right. And, and none right. of us can claim to be perfect. That's for certain. Yeah. But whenever we have a committee, conventional wisdom was conventional wisdom for a good reason, right. because it was really wisdom. And <laughs> right. John, it was conventional, <laughs> not necessarily wisdom. Right. <laughs> well, right. John definitely wrote the apostle. The, the yeah. apostle definitely wrote the revelation, as we've seen, as I demonstrated right from the language of um. His first epistle that he also wrote the first epistle, and, yeah. and it, it can't be um, it, it's foolish to dispute it because of the all of the, the the volume of all the ancient writings and witnesses that that admitted and and they corroborated and the people that aside from Marcion right who, who did live in the second century right uh-huh. but the people that follow in that vein most of them that say, oh, the Revelation was written in the Middle Ages, or, or the Revelation was written by somebody else. Most of those people are simply ignorant, and they're, they are reporting and repeating what they heard from some Jew. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they're just repeating it without really looking into it for their own. They hear it. It sounds good. They don't like it anyway. They don't like it because they don't understand it. So right away they just go parroting some Jew. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's what Judeo Christians are. <laughs> Parents of the Jews, right? <laughs> and puppets of the Jews as well, right? Now, right. now the one bishop, uh, I, I didn't have his name, but it was Dionysius of Alexandria in the third century who basically followed Marcion and, and disputed the authorship of the Revelation. Oh, but all okay. of the other ancient witnesses refute him. Right, very good. And, and they refute Marcion. So, yeah. so it's. Um, yeah, well, you're using the Greek pronunciation. Uh, you know, I've always heard pronounced Marcion, so uh, you know, wh- whichever we're talking about the same person. And isn't it true that Marcion also believed or taught that Jesus was just a mere human being and not the Son of God? Wouldn't that well, well, right, and, and he, he, right, exactly. He had a lot of heresies with him, mm-hmm. and, and I, the, the little bit that I read real quick on on Marcion a few minutes ago was from Wikipedia, and Wikipedia makes one huge mistake in saying that it was Marcion who was for whom the the word heretic appears associated with Marcon, Marcion for the first time in Christianity, and that's a lie because Paul uses the uh-huh. word, the Greek word heresis mm-hmm. is the word which the Greek, which the King James translates heresies, right? Right. And heretus is a is a noun form of hereticus, which is an adjective, right? Okay. Or, or it's used as a noun also, but right. it, it means a heretic or somebody who is heretical. Right. And he would have applied it to a Pharisee, no doubt, <laughs> an Edomite Pharisee or a follower. Well, well right. And and Marcion, it, it's well, Marcion's actually the son of a bishop. 
but but it seems that he dabbled with a young woman he shouldn't have, and his father excommunicated him, and that's mm-hmm. when he seems to have come up with all of these crazy doctrines. Or and it's that the story's not exactly clear. Yeah. Let me Mark, start a rumor: he was Papaya's lover. <laughs> yeah, right. He, he seems to have had an axe to grind. And yeah. Stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, he was probably rejected for a, a post of a bishopric. Because he didn't know anything, <laughs> right? And, and so, but he had money to spend and, and uh, convince people otherwise, right? Well, well, Tertullian and several others spent an awful lot of time refuting him, and and they did it successfully because in the ancient world, when books were copied by hand, books that nobody wanted weren't copied. Uh huh. Right. That's why we lost Enoch, right? Because the the church excluded it from canon, mm-hmm. and, and therefore mm-hmm. nobody wanted it, so. They just stopped making copies of it. You well, know, thank Yahweh that the Ethiopians preserved it. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. Well, well, right. We wouldn't have it from the Dead Sea Scrolls because they stole it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. John Strugnell testified it was there, and the Jews started uh, calling him an anti-Semite when he exposed that they, they made off with it, right? Right, right. Aramaic Enoch. Yeah. There, there were fragments of it in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but John Strugnell said that there was a um, rather complete Aramaic Enoch that disappeared between 1967 and 1993, when the Jews had the Dead Sea Scrolls more or less hemmed up. Yes. Okay, well, a couple of questions for you before I, because uh, uh, my contribution today is going to be a list of symbolic words you know, that will occur in the book of Re- Revelation as we proceed. But uh, I'm really interested in, uh, I forget the person, the anti Nicene father who was the bishop of Carthage. Well, that uh, was Tertullian. T- that was Tertullian, okay. That was Tertullian. He wrote a lot of excellent apologies on, on Christianity. When I say apology, uh, that that means an, an answer, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an, it, in Greek, it just means an answer in defense. That, right. That's what it means. Yeah, he wrote a lot of excellent apologies concerning Christianity. And, and back in, in the wintertime, or, or Last spring, maybe, when you took a night off on, on this program, I read Tertullian's Day Spectaculous, okay. that program, well, which okay. is about about the spectacles to which I compared modern football and modern <laughs> organized sports. Yeah, bread and circuses. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And, well, it still, makes, it, it still works today. Yeah. He wrote it 1,800 years ago. It still works today. Yeah, okay. So uh, my question about Carthage is because, again, the conventional wisdom is that Carthage was a Phoenician city. Well, well not a... like Tertullian's time. It was a Roman city. Right. I mean, the, the Romans, um, they, you know, soundly defeated the, the Carthaginians. They actually sowed the city with salt and the fields around it with salt in the second century B.C. so that the Carthaginians had to leave, so that yes. they, they couldn't come back. Right. And, and it was a Roman city by the time of um, Tertullian. Yeah. Now, now, this, now, whether, yeah. now, whether it's Phoenician or Roman, we're still talking about Israelites, aren't we? Well, absolutely. And and even in Roman times, you, you know, Tertullian was known as a Carthaginian, and that shows you how we are so quick to identify ourselves by geography and not by, by, yeah, by race. race. Right? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Well, which is an age-old problem with our people. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a New Yorker, and, yeah. <laughs> and I go away to California, and I see a Negro that's a New Yorker, and he wants to be my homeboy. Right. And, and I'm really a lot more closely related to the white Californians, right? So, yeah. so that's where my affinity should lie. You be I, a I, I <laughs> right. well, We identify ourselves by geography. It's always our downfall. Tertullian right. was definitely, he, he was a Roman bishop of Carthage. Right. And that makes or Bishop of Roman Carthage, however yeah. you want to describe it, but and, he was a Roman. And he would be one of those converts that Yahshua was talking about. That you know, you, uh, when he told the the apostles, they will not go through all the Israelite cities until the Son of Man be come. Right? Well, Carthage had to be converted, Rome had to be converted, Germany had to be converted, France, uh, Russia, Britain, Ireland, they all had to be converted. That's where all the Israelites were. Well, absolutely, and that sure as hell didn't happen by 70 A.D. No. <laughs> so I right. guess Harold is a liar or Christ is a liar, yeah, but I vote, right. for, uh, I vote for Christ and, and call me as Harold a liar. Now, Alexandria was Alexandria at this time because Alexandria is always known as a Greek settlement, okay? Was it, it was a Greek settlement, but it had a large Judean quarter. Uh-huh. And okay. a lot of Not those Jewish, Judeans, but Judean. Well, well, I say Judean because that's what it is, right? Okay. But a lot of those people were probably the spawn of the Edomite Jews. So they were and, a and well, well, right, and mm-hmm. and we can't tell, but since Judea was a was a mixture with as many Edomites in it as there were Israelites, yes. we we can only imagine that yeah. Alexandria was no different. Right, so Alexander is probably the vacation spa, <laughs> right, for the Judeans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's your take on Philo? Well, well, I, I Judahite think or Judean? Philo, to me, had all the hallmarks of a Edomite Jew babbler, okay. right? <laughs> I mean, Philo, right. and this is my personal opinion, right? Okay. I produced Philo for several hours and decided that there was no way that I could ever read it. Uh-huh. Because I thought my impression of Philo was that him and Freud should have been bed partners. <laughs> Which is why I call Philo the philosopher babbler. There's right? probably some lineage there. <laughs> right. Philo, Philo tried to, um, he, he was a syncretist, and, and he uh. tried to reconcile Greek pagan poetry with the Hebrew Bible. Uh-huh. Okay. Plain book. Now, now, they can be reconciled. Yeah. Once you understand that the Greeks were Israelites who had learned the ways of the Canaanites and expounded on and made fanciful tales out of all the Hebrew Bible stories. That's right. But that's, right. Yeah. that's not the way Philo approached it. Okay. Philo approached it with the idea in mind that the Jewish fables, right? <laughs> well, well, right, that the Greek stories were as legitimate as the Hebrew ones, yeah. and, and that they could all be explained in harmony, and, and that's just impossible. Without the Jewish commentary. The only thing is <laughs> right. a lot of babble. Yeah. And that's what it did. Yeah, and that's been our problem, is just about all of history and theology that has come down the pike has been corrupted by Jewish commentary. Well, well, right, and and there might be some historical gems here and there in Philo. Yeah. However, I never thought reading it, it, it's a pretty steep volume, I never thought it worth the read yeah. for the sake of mental hygiene. Yeah. Okay, very good, very good. 
All right, so does that complete your survey of the uh, historicity of John on Patmos there? Or do you have more? Absolutely. No, that's enough for me, right? (laughs) All right, very good. Very good. I have a list of words here now that we're going to be confronting in the book of Revelation. And we talked about one last night, namely the olive tree that we uh, encountered in the book of Jeremiah, where the olive tree is clearly discussed as being Israel. Okay? So wherever we run into the olive tree, it's Israel. And then when we run into trees, as often we have in the Old Testament, they're nations, they're people. Okay? So trees symbolically are people. It's clear. It's very clear biblical symbolism. Okay? So anybody who deviates from that and tries to suggest that a tree is merely a uh, an idea <laughs> or, or, or refers to good and evil as to as the good and evil people you know as the anti seedliners do they really need to look at the symbolism and see how how frequent that word tree is a symbol of people okay and it can be Israelite people and it can be non Israelite people depending on the context but the olive tree is Israel okay so there's no doubt about that uh, the word mountain. We come across the word mountain very frequently, and when it's not meant literally, it means the government or the leadership. Then typically it means our governments and our leadership, okay, the leadership of Israel. And uh, sun, S-U-N, often symbolizes a king. Moon often symbolizes the clergy or a church, okay. And one of the, the most specific examples, is Revelation 12, where we see the woman. The woman is Israel in that image. She's got a crown of 12 stars. She is lit up by the sun, and her and her feet are standing on the moon. Okay? So in that one symbol, we can see that Yahshua takes his bride Israel, the 12 tribes, and they stand upon the, uh, well, how should I put it? Well, let's say the ashes of the the current churches that we have today, because all of those claim to be Israel. They're not. We are Israel, and when the marriage feast takes place, uh, true Israel will be standing on the uh, garbage pile <laughs> of the Judeo-Christian churches. Okay, so given that imagery, that's a fair interpretation of that uh, of that image, right? Wouldn't you say so? Well, well, yeah. It's that those symbols certainly aren't to be taken literally, right? Right. A, you know? a woman never stood on the moon. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of a, a lot of people equate that to the Apollo missions, but that's right. it, it's really talking about um, the dominion and and Israel's rule with God and and the twelve stars, and it, it's an Israelite symbolism. It, it doesn't. We, we shouldn't take those those. Yeah. Um, I need those symbols literally. Yeah, you mean Sarah Palin is not going to stand on the moon? <laughs> well, well, she should be. Yeah, Her right. and Glenn together, right? <laughs> Very good. Okay, and the word sea means people. Very obviously means people. Yes. Large throngs of people, okay? And the earth, and uh, this is a bit more problematic, but it seems to me that the word earth uh, also means nations, established nations, uh, particularly those in Europe, uh, those nations of Israel. Okay, so uh, I think we, and, and, and uh, I would argue in favor an additional 
concept in favor of that is that uh, the Hebrew word Adama means ground or earth. Okay, so if we go back to the Hebrew word ground or earth, and we uh, equate that with earth in the European nation states, it's talking about the territory that the Israelites inhabit while these historical episodes are taking place. Well, okay. it's talking about the Oikumene. Okay. And, and when, and for instance, and, and we'll see this, I think it's in Revelation chapter 5 or 6 where the stars fall to earth. It's talking about the Goths and the Vandals mm-hmm. that invade the Oikumene. Yes, very good, very good. And a river is, is talking again about people, but it's talking about mi- migrations, the movements of these people. Um, and, and you know, as uh, as I take these words, and if you have any additional or different take on the word, just uh, you know, just jump right in, okay? Uh, dragon. This one's pretty obvious. It's Satan, and and Satan's children <laughs> that, that follow him, right? That's the dragon. And well, uh, that's the um, we covered that. I, I discussed that one when we talked about Leviathan in the sea, right? Uh huh. The dragon in the sea is the race of Satan in the mass of people. Yeah, right. Very good, very good. Okay, and the lamp, of course, the lamp, of course, is the uh, truth, the truth of the Holy Scriptures, the light of the Holy Scriptures, and it can be either the Old Testament or the New Testament. And we discussed the word woman already, but very often the word woman is a reference to either Israel or to some congregation or to some church. And it can be, and that's also a reference to the whore, the great whore, the woman that sits on the beast of Revelation. You know, we'll encounter that whore, who, who is also a woman. And then, uh, the, um, in contrast, the word virgin is referring to Israel as not as non-race mixed with the other races around her. Okay, and uh, we'll be getting into that in Revelation fourteen four. Okay. Well, well, I see that great whore as Israel, as the Israel oh, okay. nation, not the Israelite individuals, right? But the society of the Israelite nation mm-hmm. is yeah, the whore. around. Yes, that, that's the nation that that Yahweh is married to, and that went whoring on Yahweh all the way back in the Old Testament, right? Uh-huh. And, and they're still whoring on Yahweh, right? Yeah, and they're still the whore. We are the whore, and yeah. and not. We as individuals, but we as the system and society uh-huh. that we have grown into it is the whore. That, yeah, that's I, the way I see it. Right. And, and those never, churches are a part of that whore. Yeah, and, and that's very good. I've never seen it that way. I've always interpreted it as being the whore churches. The churches well, well, that's, that that's have come out of us, right? Us. Yeah. All through identity, that's the way the idea that's been passed down to us. Yeah. Is that the church is the whore, the Catholic church is the whore. Right. And, and they they race but no, I think that Israel is the whore. We've been identified as the whore all through the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and it's not, yeah, you know, it's not us as individuals, but us as a nation and a society that we've set up. Right. We are the whore. And, yeah, and, and we can come out as individuals. We can come out from the horde. The remnant can come out, exactly. And it's, and it's the churches that have been promoting the idea that we should race mix. Right? So so this well, woman... Well, right. They've been, they've been vessels for the, the whoredom. No, mm-hmm. There's no doubt. But they're only a part of the picture. They're, they're not the complete picture. Yes. Okay, very good. And then beast. Now, the word beast, it's falsely assumed by many people that the beast is always something evil. It's not always evil. It uh, simply means an animal, and that animal represents something else, okay? 
So it's not necessarily evil. We find, for example, I think in Daniel, the four beasts, uh, and I think even in uh, Genesis, the four beasts being the uh, archangels that protect the Garden of Eden, right? So those those are well, good well right. That, yes. There were different kinds of beasts. We can't everywhere the word beast appears, it doesn't mean the same thing. But the beast of Revelation thirteen, and to me, the beast of Daniel two and the beast of Daniel seven, what that represents is governments apart from the government of God. Mm-hmm. You know, a government apart from God's government is a beast government because. It, it's set up with the rules and, and under the will of man, by the will of man. And, and man, apart from God, we, we are the children of Yahweh, there's no doubt. But when we disaffect ourselves from the will of our Father, we're no better than the animals, so therefore we could be beasts too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, well, and we are that, animals, right? I mean, we're right. and, and those, animals. Yeah. Those beast governments are governments that were set up by man. That's right. why they're beast governments. They're not the government of Yahweh. Right. I'm going to leave the, the, the next one to the people in the chat room. I want to see how many people get this right. Who is the bride? Okay. Now, it's obviously, it has to be Israel, right? But it's only a portion of Israel. So, <laughs> yeah, don't steal my thunder. <laughs> okay, so uh, see if it, yeah, Israel is close. No, not the church. Not the church. It's uh, you're very close. You're very close. Well, well the, the assembly can only be made of Israel. Right. right. It has to not be. Israel. The, it's definitely not the organized church. Right. right. The true and, church. And that's getting close to the elect. Point. There you go. Now we're getting really close. Somebody raised a really excellent point, and I forget who it was, and I should kick myself in the tail for it because <laughs> I, I don't yeah, – you know, he deserves credit for this, right? Yeah. He does deserve credit for this. He, he made a little treatise in an email. I think it may have been Vandal. I'm not positive, but the verbal Vandal that I, I sponsor a blog for, right, vandal.christagany.org. Well, well um, I'm not positive, but I think it was him. Well, well anyway, he wrote this little paper that if, if Satan – is an individual, then the bride has to be an individual. So if we're looking for the Antichrist as an individual, <laughs> then the bride has to be an individual. So if Obama is the Antichrist, then the bride has to be walking around somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, and that just, just shows the folly of picturing the Antichrist is an individual, or Satan is an individual. Right. That's all he meant to do with it, and, and it was a very good way the way he it, – it was very good the way he approached it. Yes, very good. Yeah, and remnant is the correct answer, yes. <laughs> the bride is the remnant, the ones who have cleansed themselves of all sin, or at least have been trying to, those of us who talk, uh, you know, address Yahweh by his name and keep his commandments. Well, well, the bride will be the future nation, and that's 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 what the bride is. It's the nation that Yahweh married in in the exodus. It's the cleansed nation. It has to be cleansed. Well, well, now it does, yeah. I I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, right. But, but, you you know, if you look at the um, the 144,000, you know, in in Revelation chapter 7, after the 144,000, there's an innumerable multitude that did cleanse their garments in the blood of the white. Right, right. And that's what that white wedding dress is all about, right? That's symbolic of the bride that's coming. But it's all, it symbolizes, number one, uh, pure blood and sinlessness. 
right? That's what that symbolizes, okay? That's what the bride is. So it can't be the church, because look what the churches are doing, right? Obviously, people have different definitions for the word church, and they mean they mean true Israel when they talk about the church. However, uh, that that language, church, is really not scriptural. It's always congregation, you know. So we have a pure congregation, and we have a congregation that's whoring around. It's two entirely uh, diametrically opposed groups. And, of course, Judeo-Christians don't even get that, right? Okay, the word song, the song or, uh, symbolizes teaching or doctrine. And uh, the book of Revelation talks to, about us singing a new song. Okay, uh, so, uh, there's going to be a group that sings a new song that only only that group understands, right? Who could that be? It can only be Christian identity, because everybody else is singing. But actually, the verse is even better than that, because it says, as it were, a new song. Okay? Well, which means it's not really a new song, it means, but it's perceived to be a new it's song. It's perceived to be a new song, but it's not really a new song. We're the ones teaching the old-time religion. Everybody else has got it wrong. They've been changing it. Okay? Uh, here, I'll let you guess on this one. Dogs. Who are the dogs? Is there a bill? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah I'm asking. I, thought, I, thought I said I let you guess. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were still addressing the people in the chat room. Oh, no, no, no. The, I was addressing you. Sorry. Yeah, so who are the well, dogs? Well, right. Well, the dogs are definitely the Canaanites. There but, you but go. Also, <laughs> That's right. I think it could also mean anybody who aligns themselves with the Canaanites. There you go. Could yes. theoretically fit into the dog category. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, you got it absolutely right. Okay, horses. Horses typically mean military campaigns or armies, okay? Uh, let's see. Oh, candlesticks. Now, the candlesticks are uh, really ancient Israelite symbols, and uh, we'll get into that in, in great detail, but it uh, symbolizes uh, numerically the number seven. You we're talking about the, uh, the menorah, which is another symbol that the Jews stole from us, and uh, it talks, it's, it's our, one of our symbols, the number seven. And the number seven repeats over and over and over throughout the book of Revelation and in ancient prophecy as well. It's, it's very common symbolism for us. And now that ancient menorah had seven. It had seven actual positions for candles or lamps because it wasn't really a candle stand. It wasn't a candelabra. It was an oil lamp, okay? But the Jews have changed that into a nine-position candelabra, right? Why do you think they did that? Did well, they, well, maybe they wanted to add um, Esau's two Canaanite wives to the mix. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, the Jewish menorah has nine. And nine is, well, uh, Isaiah 14 says it's a satanic symbol. It certainly can be. But they always change everything. They always change you know, our, the Israelite symbols to their symbols in very sometimes very subtle ways, sometimes, in this case, a very blatant way. Yes. Okay, now the word day. How often is the word day take to be taken literally in the book of Revelation? Well, right. It's never to be taken literally in a prophecy. And, yeah. and it's not even to be taken literally in Genesis. And, and I've had a, a very prominent um, – I, I was very distressed lately. I, I had a very prominent Christian 
Israel identity pastor tell me that he accepted the days of of um oh, literally Genesis to be literal twenty four oh. hour periods. Wow! And, and I couldn't believe it. I don't know how to answer this guy. I, I mean, I know how to answer him, <laughs> right? But I, I just don't want to belittle him, and, and that's right. probably what he deserves. But um, yeah. Well, yeah. I, if, the, if the moon and the sun weren't created for the four till the fourth day, right? Well, that eliminates those four days as literal days. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, yeah. The Hebrew word yom means eon, and it can mean day, but it also means eon. Just as we we would say. In that day, that could be a thousand years ago, right? In that day, right? Well, well, absolutely. A day is an eon or an age, and and that's the way it's used in in many many instances, very yeah. clearly throughout throughout the the Bible. Yeah. And, and and it can mean a day as we know a twenty four hour period. Again, we have to look at the context, and uh, you know, I've, I've accessed Hebrew studies which. Uh, which argue exactly what you're saying that in in Genesis chapter one it means eon it means age it doesn't mean a literal day okay so uh, that's that's very clear because yeah, as you point out the the sun and the moon did not appear until after the third day so how can the previous ones be literal they can't okay and then finally the word Jerusalem which even even those in British Israel who should know better try to take the word Jerusalem literally all the time. You know, and obviously where the book of Revelation says the new Jerusalem, then, you know, we're obviously not talking about the literal city of Jerusalem because it describes the new Jerusalem as coming down from heaven, settling here on the earth. So it can't be the same. You know, it can't be the literal Jerusalem. But uh, throughout even the Old Testament, the word Jerusalem is often used metaphorically for the people of Israel. Well, well, right, and to find Jerusalem, we have to find that Micah chapter 4 nation, and it can only be this nation. Yes, it can only be this nation. Yes, very good. Okay, I just want to discuss one more topic here, and the, uh, let's see, this is from the Apocalypse by Joseph Seiss, which was written, I think, 1888, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm going to compare his discussion of the white horse with that of Howard B. Rand to give you an idea of the, first of all, the vagueness and generality of most commentary on the book of Revelation versus the historicity or the historicist approach to the book of Revelation, which you and I advocate and which obviously Howard B. Rand, Clifton, um, Bertrand Compare. I'm not aware that Wesley Swift ever did a serious study of Revelation, but the historicist. Well, well, no, but I'm sure that he was a historicist. From, yeah. from I've read enough of his writing to to have that understanding. I, I can't cite anything off the top of my head, but I'm, I, I would be surprised if he were anything but a historicist. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, typically speaking, all of us in Christian identity are historicists. We're not futurists, we're not preterists, we're not anything else but historicists, okay? We don't take any, uh, these, in other words, these prophecies do have a historical fulfillment, and in terms of the book of Revelation, they all are subsequent to the Revelation. Although a couple of the early statements could be said to be contemporaneous, and in a couple of places even anterior to 90 A.D., and actually this is one of them, 
according to the historicist interpretation. And um, I forget who it was in the chat room. I think it was Commander asked about who's the white horse. Okay, or that's what we're going to talk about right here. And here's what Joseph Seiss has to say about it. Is it difficult then to divine what horses signify in connection with the divine government and administrations? Is that the whole idea that of swift and irresistible power? What then are we to see in these horsemen but the earthly images of the swift, invisible, resistless power of God going forth upon the proud, guilty, and unbelieving world? So far as the preaching of the gospel is a potent war power and an agent of judicial visitation upon the wicked, so far it is included in this symbol of the white horse and his crowned and conquering rider, but no further. So he's saying he's only, uh, Joseph Seitz only wants to take this as being symbolic of the kingdom, let's say. Okay. Well, well he's not right. He, I know. He's well, wrong he says, about this. And, and he says for his last sentence in this quote, Roman emperors are here quite out of the question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's his conclusion. Now, uh, I hope I have the right page here. Howard B. Rand. Okay. Now, now Howard B. Rand is definitely a historicist. There's simply no doubt about it. And uh, I, I want to re recommend this book to everybody in the chat room. This is Study and Revelation by Howard B. Rand. Obviously, there's disagreements because he's more of the British Israel. Yeah. Yeah, just throw away all the parts that say that talk about Judah, right? Right, right. Yeah, and then uh, it sort of breaks down as we get into our, our contemporary dates, right? But in this in this area, I think he's right on the money. He says the white horse. Well, here, let me back up one paragraph here. The Bible is full of references to horses in connection with battle and war. Okay, so far uh, that's in agreement with what Seitz had to say. To talking about power. The writer of Proverbs had this use of the horse in mind when he said, quote, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of Yahweh, Proverbs 21:31. In all wars of conquest, horses were an important part of the armed forces. The fact that horses are prominent in the first four seals clearly designates that the government of this period relies on the power and might of aggressive military strength to carry on and rule. Okay? That's very good. and It's very general and in total agreement with what Seiss has said so far. Okay? The different colors denote the type of government and kind of rule exercised over the empire. Now, of course, I'm not discounting anybody who wants to suggest that the four horsemen of the apocalypse might have a contemporary duel or second fulfillment. But I haven't been able to, you know, I haven't been able to place the four horsemen in modern terms. Some people like to say, well, the black horses, the Nazis, the red horses, communism. Uh, but then it leaves out who is the white horse and who is the pale horse. I haven't heard any good commentary on that, right? So continuing here, I, I think it's historical and uh, it, it, it's in the past, okay? Continuing here with uh, Rand. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are often referred to in modern literature and made to represent the order of events of every period of chaos and trouble. Let us, however, remember that these horses with their four riders had a definite historical fulfillment in the activities of imperial Rome. We can follow in all campaigns of conquest a trend of misrule and violence. But the details as given in these seals can apply to no period in history other than the time shown 
though conditions similar to those existing in Rome produce like results. And so one more uh, comment here. The white horse signifies justice and designates a period while under military authority, yet one in which the crowned rider would be an emperor and rule with magnanimity. The fact that he carried a bow indicates that those against whom he fought in his campaigns of conquest were not close at hand, but at a distance, far from the center of government. The establishment of the Roman Empire is generally dated from the Battle of Actium, 31 B.C. This began the imperial reign of Octavius under the title of Emperor and Augustus. Peace and prosperity came to Rome under his rule. Many reforms were instituted at a distance, and in the outlying portions of his vast empire, there were armed clashes as Rome consolidated her conquests and extended her territory. The reign of Augustus was the happiest period that had ever been experienced in Rome. There was almost universal contentment in those days, and the people went forth in peaceful callings, and the poets broke forth in song. Okay, That is a historicist interpretation as opposed to the vague generalities that we get from uh, just about every other school of interpretation. Well, well, right, and we will see that the historicist interpretation of the four horsemen in conjunction with the Roman Empire is absolutely the correct interpretation. I, I believe, I, I hope to be able to elucidate that when we get to it. Yes. However, the, the white horse re represents, you know, the Roman emperors, the original ones, yes. were just out of Judah. There, there's no doubt about there that. There you go, that, yes. And, and um, they wore the crown. They bore the scepter. Yeah. And... and that that white horse was the period of, of expansion of the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. where the red horse represents civil war, mm -hmm. the black horse a period of unrighteous tyranny, yeah. and the green horse a period of decline and decay. And that happens to be a pattern that every empire That's follows. right. That's right. And that yes. is why mm -hmm. we are mimicking it today. That's right. So it had a very specific fulfillment in ancient Rome, as imperial Rome, as Rand says. But yet that pattern has re repeated itself over and over throughout history. Okay, and we're, we're living that history today. It's being repeated in our white Anglo-Saxon nations today because the corruption as we see from the Madoff scandal and all the economic and military chaos that's going on all around us, we're in the final stages. We're in the final stages, okay? Well, while we hope that we're in the green stage, it seems yes. to be that the black president represents the beginning of the green stage. <laughs> <They're> right. <laughs> well, now, uh, now that, that word, because it's often translated as pale, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's chloros. It means green. It's a green horse, and, and that's, green I horse. think, in, in the Greek terms and not uh, in the King James. Right? Yeah. Now, why is it translated pale if the Greek means green? I don't know, but the word is the word we get chlorine from, and, okay. and maybe that makes things pale. I, uh, chlorine, <laughs> okay. right? Bleached. <laughs> but the word chloros. We got a bleached president. Right. Yeah. Means we have a president that needs some. <laughs> the word chloros means green and right. in the sense of chloroform or, or chlorophyll, yes. right? They're words that are associated with the biology of trees, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, no amount of bleach can turn a black into a white. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just, uh, and he even admits that he's a, uh, what he, he called himself a mutt, you know? So he, he knows what he is, right? He, he knows he's not white. And, and even. 
Uh, even blacks, some blacks don't want them. <laughs> well, well, he's a shill set up by Wall Street. That's right. So that they can look pillage $13 trillion from, from the American taxpayers. That's hey. exactly what they've done. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so I think uh, we, we covered, uh, you know, the symbolism of the Book of Revelation, and uh, this should qualify as a fairly good introduction to the Book of Revelation. So I can't wait to actually get into the text next uh, next Saturday night, okay? So, uh, and then tomorrow, my guest is going to be Alan Truitt, recently released from prison from Texas. He's also a two-seed liner, and he's going to be telling us about his experiences in prison and uh, probably talking about, uh, you know, two-seed line and uh, the what he wrote a book called Cultural Reconstruction, which shows how the Jews have reconstructed our culture and our civilization in their image. And uh, far too many white people and white Christians have followed in that matrix of deceit that the Jews have created for us, and they, they just can't get out of it. But that's what we're here for, to pop, to pop that bubble, to pop that matrix of deceit and just blow it wide open so that the white people of the world can see all the deceit and dishonesty and corruption that's going on, which has been created by the Jew, Okay. So, Bill, thanks for joining me tonight. Looking forward to the show tomorrow. And, Bill, I'll see you next Friday and Saturday, okay? Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh bless everybody.